What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here at the home studio, the windowed studio, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. Guest producer, Ramsey. I guess you're not a guest producer anymore. Ramsey's a solid team member at this point. I'm sure he'll weasel his way on the mic at some point as well. So Ramsey's uh, staring at me, and that means that this is the intro for the Ross Marquand episode on Die Hard. I got to tell you, people, I know I say um, kind of in all of these intros, what a nice person they were. And first of all, that's great because everyone I've had has has turned out to be uh, really good people, good folk. And um, it's nice. I haven't had any big jerks come through here. Uh, But Ross, boy, he is a super nice guy. And he has a very interesting life story and career path and acting that we get into And I believe all of those things uh, make up uh, how Ross is, which is to say a very nice fella who you can just tell is imbued with gratitude about his career and about life. And uh, I really admire his outlook on things. So we uh, we had a great time. This one is supersized. We talked about uh, not only his life and career, we talked about impressions, of course, because he is one of the masters in... As everybody knows, it is no secret, I am nuts for impressions and impressionists, and he indulged me uh, as as much as we could without it completely overtaking the show. So look forward to uh, James Gandolfini 
making an appearance in John C. Riley and Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford. They're all in here, everybody. It's good stuff. And then we zeroed in and geeked out big time on Die Hard. Uh, I got to say, it was great to sit down with someone who who loves this movie as much as I do. We both had just watched it, uh, and he took notes uh, like like a good student, which uh, those always make for the best shows. And boy, we really get into it. The great, great film Die Hard from 1988. Um, for his money, and maybe for my money too, the, the best action film of all time. So I don't want to keep you on ice any longer. Here we go with Ross Marquand on Die Hard. What did little Ross do growing up? Little Ross what was, was your life like? into church and then uh, – What Boys, kind of church? What denomination? Uh, Methodist. Okay. And then Boy Scouts. Uh-huh. We were big into Boy Scouts, um, hence the camping and everything. I grew up Baptist. Ah, nice. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now I'm kind of buffet style with religion. And right. A little bit of everything. Okay. Whatever makes sense, whatever works for me. Some yeah. people think that's a cop-out, but I don't really care. That's it not works. a cop-out. It works for me. It's called know? opening your mind as you get older. Yeah, that's how I like to look at yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's basically just, um, you know, grew up the youngest of three boys. Scouting was always a big thing for my parents. Uh-huh. Um, my, my father was an Eagle Scout, his twin brother, and I think their younger brother as well. So, of course, it was expected that we all get into that as well. And did you um, did you achieve the highest level? I made it to Eagle, yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's um, quite an achievement. My brothers and I did, yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely at the time, because, you know, when you're in middle school and high school and mm-hmm. you're, you know, having to wear, like, these awful olive yeah. green pants and, yeah. and these khaki, you know, with the handkerchief around your neck. Like, right. You feel like a dork already right. <laughs> in, in middle school with pimples and braces and glasses. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing you want to do, because our our troop required us to go to school once a week mm-hmm. dressed in our uniform mm. to kind of, I suppose, is raise the, awareness. Is that the embarrassment badge? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know, looking back, why they made us do that. But every Friday, I think, or every maybe it was every other Friday, but we were expected uh-huh. to wear our uniform and you know it was yeah i suppose you could have like lied about it but i was never really good about lying about that so i just would always wear it and right. get so much crap for it yeah um there were probably other kids though right or no yeah i mean like there was probably about uh, maybe 10 kids at our school who <laughs> so not a really good ratio <laughs> yeah so unless you were in class with them and you could like team up and be like yeah we're nerds together yeah, you're the um, only guy you were just the the lone nerd out yeah yeah my nephew uh i think went all the way through eagle scout cool. and um it is an achievement and it's like i think to stick through it when it's not the 1950s mm. and you might get made fun of a little bit is well, even more an achievement it's it like it speaks it's one of those things as an adult you can look back on and be like yeah, I'm actually super proud of that now. Well, yeah, and I think, to be honest, like, that alienation and being picked on mm-hmm. in middle school and high school, as rough as it was at the time, um, I'm actually glad for it. I'm glad for my brothers beating me up. Right. I'm glad for <laughs> the, the, the harassment I got from my friends at school because, yeah. I don't know, I think that that kind of, it's maybe a little masochistic, but I, I think it toughens you up for the inevitable rejection of Hollywood, you know what I mean? Right. Like, um if you've dealt with that your whole life and then you go to Hollywood and, and you face literal nonstop yeah. daily rejection. That's tough stuff. Uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> you, know, you kind of yeah. get toughened up. When did you start acting? Uh, I mean, professionally, probably around 17, 18. Really? Um, and then 
you know, I've been, I've been acting in some way, shape or form since I was about nine. Uh But, um, yeah, I think the first time I really tried to like do professional work was about 18 years old. Was that in your family at all or entertainment in in the least? Yeah. Yeah. My, my cousin is an an amazing international DJ. He spins Brazilian, uh, neo soul and funk. Yeah. He's, he's pretty incredible. And, And his father and mother were involved in like a, oh, what's that? Um, Mighty Wind, you know, that movie? Yeah. That t- style of like, uh, oh, what's, I'm trying to think, uh, Mannheim Steamroller. Uh-huh. Is, that, is that, no, is that? Well, know. Mannheim Steamroller is like That's the Christmas uh, Yeah, yeah, n- not them. What's their, oh, gosh. I'm thinking of like a band that they sounded like, but uh-huh. it was kind of it, very much Mighty Mamas Wind. and the Papas? No, no. I'm, I'm trying to think of a different one, but yeah, something with an M, I think. I'm on the M train. Yeah, <laughs> we're on the M train. But I think, um, yeah, gosh, what was it? Anyway, they were they were just very much into that sort of you know eight eight or nine piece. Mm-hmm. Everyone plays a guitar. Right. There's a there's a very light drum in the background, uh-huh. and I think that's how my aunt and uncle met was in this band. Right. Um, so music has always very much been, and and my other cousin, their daughter, uh, was involved in dance and ballet, and mm-hmm. then then later became a capoeira instructor. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, it's very much in our in our family's blood, I suppose. Yeah. Are yeah. you a musician as well? No, I wish I was. Can I, you sing? I can. Eh, I can kind of sing a yeah. little bit, but I mean, I can I can carry a tune. But like, I'm actually trying to actively learn how to play guitar and mandolin. Right. Mandolin, especially when I'm in the cabin, because yeah, sure. You should you should play mandolin while you're in uh-huh. the cabin. <laughs> I think. Um, and then I'm playing the handpan. Uh, okay, what's that? Um, it's actually, if I may. Yes, you may. <laughs> uh, there's there's an app. I have I have a handpan at home, but um, I think I've the, heard of that. It's these lovely. Oh, whoops! I better turn up the. I'm about to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's very relaxing, and after a long day, I like to just play that. And that's kinda... cool. Is it a, sort of a take on a steel drum? Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 uh you know very much found in like East Asia. Um, but this is yeah, they're very much a variation of like what you might find in Caribbean islands as that's well. Cool. You know, so it's 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 great. I but love you have it. a real one. I do have a real okay. a big like. <laughs> I thought you sit around on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do that. I do that too when I'm on set and I need to chill out. But, yeah, yeah, that's pretty relaxing. I bet it is. Yeah. It's cool. I think people should. Uh, I think it's cool that. I mean, how old are you? Like mid thirties? Yeah, thirty six. Yeah. Yeah, like it's not too late to learn a new thing. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I think right. a lot of people get to a certain age like, oh well, I can't learn to play the piano now. Yeah, I'm trying to but learn. You can. I can. I ch- yeah, thank you. I'm trying to. I mean, it's it is. It's also like. Muscle memory, too, more than anything. Yeah. But, you know. Well, and guitar, I played guitar since I was 12. Oh, wow. And and remarkably not as good as somebody who has been playing guitar for 35 years. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, pretty decent, like, rhythm guitar player, but I, I can't string three notes of a solo together. Wow. Just never have been able to. Yeah. But um, can play pretty good rhythm guitar, and guitar is just all about repetition and yeah. build like you said building up those calluses it's the calluses yeah the you just got to kind of keep at it Oof. and then before you know it you're like oh wait a minute i have fingers of steel now yeah yeah and uh just just learn those chords you can teach yourself i'm working on it yeah yeah it's great <laughs> yeah. and and i played a little bit of mandolin but um oh really yeah i mean just chord strumming and stuff yeah nothing it, like the picking it's tough because it's all reverse of guitar a little bit you know the yeah. way you play upwards as opposed to downwards yeah, in guitar. yeah. so that's that's the thing that's kind of tripping me up you know yeah. So I don't well playing trying to learn both at the same time. Yeah, it's tricky. And the handpan. Yeah. That says a lot to. about you. It's I, I'm in the cabin alone a lot, so you know. Yeah. Um 
Well, so, tell me about how you got into Walking Dead, because for someone, um, I mean, you were cast then, I guess, when you were in your early 30s. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of late to get your first big, big break like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely feel very lucky. Um, I had literally given up acting. Really? About a month or six, five or six weeks before I got the part. Uh-huh. Um, and how do you give up acting? Do you just tell yourself, like, I'm just done? Uh about $100,000 worth of debt, mm-hmm. um, no job, no girlfriend, no career to speak <laughs> of. I mean, like, I, I had had little, I, the biggest thing I had done at that point was a very small, and I mean, very small guest star role on Mad Men where I was playing Paul. Yeah, you played Paul, Paul Newman. Newman. like, off in the I distance. I remember that, like a man. very small speck in the distance. And um, That's kind of cool, though. It's kind of cool. It's a neat bit of, you know, trivia yeah. for that time. Um and uh, that was it. You know, the rest of it was just mostly indie projects or voiceover work where, mm-hmm. you know, it was neat to do stuff, but you didn't make more than 75 or 100 bucks a day. Right. And anybody who's ever lived in L.A. for any amount of time knows that you just can't live on that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, after about 10 years, I was like, okay, I get it. It's right. Not going to happen for me. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, ne- I didn't know if I was going to give up acting entirely, but just film and TV for you know, for that time. I mean, I just felt like I needed to step away from it. And if theater came calling or writing or photography, which yeah. I love doing too, I could still pursue that. But was that, um, the, what was your career plan? Was it that? Yeah. I mean, the the plan was not great because I just decided to move to New York, which is even more expensive. But <laughs> I was going to switch with my, my friend. She was going to take my spot. I was going to take her spot. We were oh, going to cool. switch for about six or seven months. And uh, we were just going to try out a new city. That's a great idea. Um, yeah, because it was a very comparable rent. I uh-huh. figured, well, I'm broke here. Might as well be broke in a city that I really want to be in. <laughs> At least there you can get like a dollar <laughs> slice of pizza for lunch. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was a pretty sweet setup. I was going to have three roommates. And I was like, great. That sounds perfect. You mm-hmm. know, like, let me just live this really bohemian, yeah. you know, broke-ass artist life. Yep. Um, and I felt great. It was ironic because I'd given up acting in smaller waves twice before, mm-hmm. one at the five-year mark, one at the, I think, eight-year mark or seven or eight-year mark. And those just felt awful. I felt like I was tucking my tail between my legs and right. going back to Colorado. And it was a, it was a failure. Mm-hmm. It was like a real acknowledgement that I had failed at my dream. Yeah. Um, and then when, when this, you know, decision to, to give up happened, it was actually a cathartic one. Right. I felt great. I felt like this giant albatross was lifted off my, my mm. shoulders and I felt like the thing that defined me being an actor my whole life, this mm. thing that I thought was in me and I had it to be this, it was gone now. And it was nice because like I didn't have to be this thing anymore. Yeah. The expectation from friends and family, they were like, you're going to get it, you're going to get it. Right. And then at the, the five-year mark, they're like, hey, did you get it? And you're like, <laughs> no, still trying. Oh, okay. Right. And then at the seven-year mark, they're like, hey, when are you going to come back home? Yeah, and you're like, you I know? don't even want to go home for Christmas anymore. Yeah. And you, I couldn't afford to go home a lot of times. You yeah. Know? And they would, my, my, my parents would offer, and sometimes I'd take them up on it. But a lot of times I would, the last, the last uh, Thanksgiving before I decided to give up, I did a medical study. I was doing a lot of medical studies at the time uh, to pay the bills. So I was trying out non-FDA-approved drugs on my body wow. to pay the bills because when you're broke, you do stupid shit. What kind of, um, like, what was that like? This was a really rough one. This was the roughest one I ever did and, and the, the last one I'll hopefully ever have to do <laughs> in my life. Yeah. Um, but this was to test the efficacy of this non-FDA-approved drug on MRSA patients. And MRSA, if it's not detected within the first three weeks, mm-hmm. you usually die. So, and this was a particular nasty strain of methresistant staph infection 
And so they tested it on healthy patients. Mm -hmm. And of the 20 people who made it into the study, only four people remained at the end. Two of those people were placebos. They were getting Mm -hmm. sugar pills. Um, We had the drips. We had the IVs in our arm 24-7 for 30 days straight. Holy shit. We were in there. We couldn't leave the facility for 30 days. We were allowed to walk around for 15 minutes uh, outside. Oh, my God. So it was like being in prison. Yeah. Especially because a lot of my uh, co-patients were ex-cons. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was it was me and this uh, very, very gaunt model. Uh-huh. And she and I kind of made a pact because we were so broke but so determined wow. not to leave. Because they were paying us a whopping $3,600. Oh, jeez. And even though everyone else had either asked to leave or uh-huh. had been asked to leave because people were passing out in the bathrooms, hitting their heads on the toilet seats. They were, they were, you know, going into convulsions. I mean, like people were having such an adverse reaction to these drugs. It felt like a little animal was inside of our bellies trying to get its way out. It was, it, it was like a f- film script. Yeah, it was at a, I mean, I'm definitely working on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. It was like a sci-fi type of thing. And, and are they just charting side effects at this point? Yeah. And they're also just seeing like, how well it affects your nervous system right. and if it actually helps with any white blood cell uh, increase. Even though you're thing. healthy, it's not like mm-hmm. they gave yeah. you MRSA. Right, right. You know, well, but ironically, I did get MRSA from gym equipment like a year and a half later, <laughs> which is the, the irony of ironies. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and and that was brutal. That was Holy very hellish. Cow. So, um, yeah, MRSA is no joke. And, and <laughs> I feel like this is like a PSA for MRSA <laughs> all of a sudden. Um, but... Yeah, it it was it was a dark time, and I couldn't I couldn't go home for Thanksgiving that year because it was over. The, the The study ended, I think, like November thirtieth. And you were just a wreck. I was a wreck, and my parents kept calling, like, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm working on a medical drama. I'm doing a film." Oh, man. And I was lying, but kind of not. You no, know, you were I was working doing on a medical, medical drama. drama. <laughs> and they were like, "Well, we're happy for you, but we wish we could see you for Thanksgiving." I'm like, yeah, they just they're working straight through it. I'm sorry. Oh man. man. And it was tough to lie to them and mm-hmm. say like, "I wish I could be there, but I don't have any money," and I'm doing medical studies to pay the bills now, you know. No wonder you're such a nice guy. I've never told my parents this. So really? <laughs> they gonna, hear like, this? If they hear this, they're going to be like, what the hell? <laughs> like, why did you do that? No, but no wonder you're such a good dude. Like you have, uh, you had a real life and real life experiences before you achieve success. And uh, I imagine you're very grateful. Um, very, very grateful. And grounded. Uh, I'm, I try to be as grounded as I can. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I, I still make a shit ton of mistakes and I, I well, try to be the best person I can be. But like, you know, it's, um, it is tough when you're that broke for that long, yeah, man. that much insecurity and doubt mm-hmm. going into, you know, zero to 60, all of a sudden you're on this world renowned show that is this thing that is beyond anything that's really existed on TV before. I mean, So how did that happen? Give me that story. Uh, I gave up, uh-huh. and then I felt great, and <laughs> I felt, honestly, like it was the most amazing thing. I, I felt like I could do anything mm-hmm. after I gave up acting, and uh, it, was, it was wonderful, and I turned on uh, Netflix one day because yep. I was unemployed, and I didn't care, and I could just watch, you know, TV at mm-hmm. 2 in the afternoon. And I saw that Walking Dead season 4 had just arrived on Netflix. Had you already Amazon. watched the show? Yeah, I was so a huge fan of the show before it. Oh, that's kind of cool. And then I saw that Netflix uh, or Netflix was showing us season 4 and and I or is it Netflix or Amazon, but anyway, Netflix, it was showing season 4 was yeah. out and I said, "Oh, you know what? I haven't seen season 4. Let me let me just watch this and binge it." And I watched the entire season in uh-huh. a weekend. 
And I was really happy with the re- new direction they were taking. And yeah. Scott Gimple had just taken over as showrunner. And I really loved where the show was going. Uh-huh. And I just said, wow, that's great. Can't wait to see where they go with season five. And that's, that's literally, I just, you know, said that in my head mm-hmm. and then went about my, the rest of my week. And then a, about a week later, I got a call from my manager and she said, we got you another audition for The Walking Dead. And I'd auditioned for it twice already. Oh, okay. And I, and I said, oh man, you know what? I'm so sorry. I, I need to refuse this. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I, I need to, I need to take a step away from acting. I'm, I'm taking a break indefinitely. Yeah. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I just, I can't do this again. Mm-hmm. I can't do the rejection. I can't do the, yeah. you know, memorizing everything, going with, you know, uh, choices and then getting close to booking something yeah. and then getting rejected. It's a, it's a heartbreaking profession. Oh yeah, man. Um, and she said, we worked really hard to get you this, please go in. And so kind of out of obligation yeah. to her and everyone else, I, I said, okay. And because I guess you kind of forgot to tell her that you had quit acting. <laughs> I, I really had, I mean, like, I, 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 I think that I was just on such a kick of like, uh-huh. screw it. I yeah, just, yeah. I really didn't think to call my manager and tell them that I decided to give up <laughs> acting. I, I truly, and, um, I went to the audition and that's the only time in my life where I can honestly say I did not care if I booked a part or not. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I didn't come in prepared. I still memorized the lines. I still came in and, and gave it a, a go because that's just, I mean, I wanted to show respect to that casting office who's brought me in a million times and they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. They brought me in so many times. And, um, I just, I just didn't care about the outcome whether I booked it or not was irrelevant. Yeah. The first thing I thought about after I left the, the audition was, what am I going to have for dinner? Right. You know, literally. And, um, I've heard similar stories, you know, there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're not, I mean, I think when you're a broke actor and every job yeah, could mean, man. oh, I can pay rent for the next few months. That or desperation, I can put yeah. food on the table. Uh, and, and luckily I was by myself. I can't mm-hmm. imagine what it's like for people with a spouse or right. kids or whatever, you know? Um, but for me, it was, uh, a full resignation of hope. Mm-hmm. I didn't care anymore. I, wow. I was gone, totally, totally gone. I was already in New York by that point mentally. Yeah. And, uh, didn't hear anything for a week. And usually in the acting world, like if you don't hear within the first couple of days, if right. you got the part, you didn't get it. Right. But it was a week later, I was sick as a dog. It was my birthday. Mm. And... I was just uh, sick as as I'll get out. Not from MRSA. This was something totally different, but truly just like yakking and feeling awful. And I got a call around five o'clock that night from my manager and she said, are you sitting down? I said, I'm lying down. (laughs) What's up? (laughs) Just sweating and feeling awful. And she's like, well, you just, uh, you just booked the show. Wow. And I shot out of bed and like immediately felt like a million bucks. It Man. was incredible what that mental yeah. boost just did for my body. Amazing. Um, and then a week later, I was here in Atlanta shooting the show. Wow. So. That is something else. It's crazy. I don't, I don't know what the lesson there is, though. Yeah. Because, like, it's, don't, the, the lesson is not never give up in your dreams because I fully gave up. <laughs> right. I think the lesson is um, give up the expectation. Mm-hmm that you have to get something out of this, whether mm-hmm. it's love life or career or whatever. Right. Once you separate yourself from the expectation of, of this thing, I need to have this thing because this defines me. Yeah. I have no idea if I'm going to be an actor in five years. I don't know if I'm going to be in this industry in five years. Yeah. I have no idea. I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it now, but life might take me a totally different path and right. I might decide to travel for the next 10 years. Yeah. I might decide to, you know, meditate in India for the next 10 years. Uh-huh. I have no idea. I have no idea. But I think 
just keeping those options open, mm-hmm. you leave life open to surprise you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the real key of, of all life is just like, don't think that you know exactly where your life's going to go because I guarantee you don't. Yeah. You know, and Man. the best surprises come when you, when you give that up. That is good stuff, dude. Congratulations. Thanks. That's really great. Thank you. I love stuff like that. Um, I, I don't want to uh, do a little dance monkey dance thing, but I, <laughs> I would love to talk about the impressions. Okay. If you don't mind. Of course. Is that a thing that you're like, oh, no, 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 it's again. fine. It's fine. Because I grew up, um, I'm 47, and I grew up on the tail end of like Rich Little. Rich Little, of course. And uh, when I was a kid, it just enthralled me. Yeah. Uh, my brother and I both listening to like the first family mm. record and the first family rides again. Yeah. Watching Rich Little, anytime there was an impressionist, it just knocked my socks off. There's something about it. Yeah. I think uh, for some people, it just, there's a, something in the brain that it triggers this dopamine shot or something. Yeah. Uh, and I know other people, they're like, yeah, whatever. But man, it just, it gets me. And um, had Kevin Pollack in, in the studio. Kevin's, Kevin's a great. And Kevin's great, and he's he's a, a bit older than us, so he's got these great like Johnny Carson and Alan Arkin and some yeah. you know a little more old school guys. Right. But you've uh, where did that start for you? Did you always do voices? Mine started with Johnny Carson too. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we know like being the youngest of three, I think you're always the entertainer. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have to be the tension breaker in the family. I'm the youngest of three too. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's you know it's it's like if you're not. If you want to avoid getting beaten down right. by your brothers, you know, you got to you gotta make them laugh. And, you know, money was, you know, sometimes tight in our family. And yeah. we weren't, like, destitute by any means. But my dad worked his ass off to put food on the table mm-hmm. for us. And, uh, you know, it was it was tense sometimes, yeah. you know. Sometimes it was tense. And so I think that I, I, I acknowledged early on that there were very few things that made my parents laugh more than Johnny Carson. Uh-huh. And when I saw them laugh, like, heartily yeah, yeah. at Johnny Carson. And I think he was, you know, it was not like it is nowadays. I think Johnny Carson came on around, like, eight or nine mm-hmm. back then. Um, so the Tonight Show was actually a little bit on the earlier side. Yeah. Because I think people realize, like, why would I stay up until 1030 for this, you know? Yeah. Um, and Johnny, you just come out there and, and wow, you know, he just <laughs> really just come out and just, and, and my my parents would eat that up. Yeah. And my brother would sometimes do Ed McMahon. Uh-huh. Yes. You know, and it would, it would, it would make my parents laugh. You yeah. Know? Like they, they loved it. And it wasn't good. I'm sure when I was like eight or nine, whenever I was trying this, like uh-huh. it probably wasn't a very good Johnny Carson, but I would do the golf swing and yeah. everything. And it made them laugh. And I think even just that small contribution I could make as the youngest of three and feeling already kind of meek and insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me feel good. It made me yeah. feel confident. And as time went on, I just mostly did it for, for shits and giggles. Uh-huh. Um, but then I realized once I moved out to LA, you could actually make a profession of that. Right. Um, just general voice work or, hey, be this person. Be this person. Um, emulate, em- sound a little bit like this person, gotcha. emulate this, and and can you uh, actually copy this voice because we want to do this for cartoon uh-huh. or we want to do this for an actual film for voice matching work, which is a big thing. Um, and I made a, you know, most of my money between cater waitering, medical studies, and uh, and voice matching work right. amongst many other odd jobs. That's, that's, you know, where I made most of my money before I got on this show. Now, would you work at it like, because I've always done voices, but not like uh, it's I'm I'm drinking, hanging out with friends uh-huh. and uh, I'm telling a story 
about somebody and will do the voice. Yeah. But I never like worked on it. And my all my friends always laugh because I do I do good Chuck impressions, which are is to say I can never do it on stage. And people would say that's great, but I emulate it enough to where everyone knows and it gets a laugh. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, but it's I never sat in front of the mirror mm. and said, "All right, I'm going to really try and hone." My uh, my Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> yeah, I was an again going back to the Boy Scout days, a really nerdy kid. I mean, like imagine glasses, braces, pimples, and then once every week or so having to wear a Boy Scout uniform to school. Like, got picked on a fair amount, right? And I wasn't like, and your Johnny Carson didn't stop that. <laughs> no, I wasn't friendless. <laughs> I definitely had a lot of friends. It was just that you know you're the butt of a lot of jokes. Yeah, if you're that guy. And uh, the armor that I would put on would be, let me be the class clown uh-huh. as much as possible. And um, I think that for me, it was more as a necessity mm-hmm. to, to you know, work on these things because that was the only way I would get out of being con- constantly picked on. Yeah, interesting. You know? and, and, so they appreciated it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, once I got good at, like, I did, like, John Travolta uh-huh. after Pulp Fiction was big in middle school and high school, you know, try to do the Vince Vega, you know. And would people um, say, like, people that normally might pick on you say, like, Ross, do the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that they were only being nice to me because they could make me right. do the thing. But, like, it was fine because sure. I wasn't getting picked on, you yeah. know, for that brief amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, And you've gotten a lot of notoriety recently, too, Um, it seems like. The Ross Marquand impression thing has just sort of exploded uh, on late night TV, and of course, the you know all the things you've been doing lately oh, with it. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of kind of cool, huh? It's neat. It's it's opened up some doors for me for sure, and that's, yeah, that's that's been very helpful. Yeah. What is um, I mean, the one that kind of knocked me out, and and part of it is is the uh, for me, it's weird like listening to records when you're a kid because part mm-hmm. of it for me is always the. The mannerisms and the expressions can lend so much to it. So somebody like a Rich Little, like listening to albums, mm. you lose all that, but he still managed to, to get it across. But you're definitely one of the more physical uh, impressionists. I, I have to do that because I, I, I feel like... Um, you sort of inhabit it, right? Yeah, and I, and I feel like you, you really do have to become, you have to physically become the person you're impersonating because like every instrument, you know, flutes produce different sounds than saxophones, mm-hmm. you know, and it they they produce different sounds because of the way the curvature of the brass is, is you know, made. And, yeah. And you, you press on this hole, it produces a different sound versus, you know, um, this this flange or whatever the hell it's called. Right. You know, like, it produces different sounds. So when I'm, like, for example, like James Gandolfini uh-huh. is a perfect example, like, I, I put my, my face forward and I, right. and, I, and I sit on my neck and I, and I, stoop, I talk to my nose. What and you look this? like when you're doing it. It's, like, a, it's such a transformative process. Well, it's, it's, it's all just mechanics, I yeah. think, you know. And he's right up in here. And when Brad Pitt, you know, Brad Pitt just barely moves his mouth, yeah? Yeah, he's just one of very, my favorites that you do. Thanks. I mean, he's just like, he very much like, he doesn't even open his mouth very much, yeah? Yeah. He's, just, he's a dabber <laughs> when, he, when he moves his hands he's like this, yeah? Yeah, the, the the pointing and stuff. Yeah. So important. You know, and it's like, uh-huh. it's, 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 it's all in mechanics, I think, for me. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but that makes sense because um, the way, like you said, the way you speak has to do with whether or not you've got your head to the side or mm-hmm. you're slumping or slouching. And yeah. That really kind of drives someone's uh, vocal range, I think. Definitely. So I can't imagine someone doing it. Just kind of standing there in a regular pose. Oh, and, I can. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, some of my impressionist friends can do that. They, really? They can just, 
you know, be as they normally are, as, as you know, they just sit in a sound booth like this, and, and they can do that. Uh-huh. I can't. I have to fully become that person. Yeah. You know? Have you ever done it on stage? Like, is it, did you ever do stand-up or anything yeah. like that? Yeah, I've done that before. I've done a lot of impression stuff on stage. Um, you know, stand-up was always something that, like, that was, like, my, my white whale, like, in my Moby Dick. I could uh-huh. never, it was always so elusive. Like, I always, I tried it a few times, and I was never great at it because yeah. I got so scared, you know. Uh-huh. But improv, I did a lot of improv, and that always came up in the improv. Like, somehow yeah. it would just naturally go towards, hey, Jason Statham, how would you, do, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. All right, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so I just become a little kid, man. I did the same thing. I just giggled nonstop when Pollock was in there. Oh, my God. At he's... one point, I was like, just do the rest of the interview as, as Alan Arkin, and I'll, I'll just be oh, happy. <laughs> his Alan Arkin is so good, too. Yeah, it's pretty spot on. It's, God, he's good. And his, and his walk-in. I, I, I'll, I'll admit, like, his walk-in and Jay Moore's walk-in, I, I beg, borrow, and steal profusely from them. Well, everyone's got a walk-in. For sure. But, yeah. th- but their walk-in really honed in on, for me, like, because, you, you know, there's people who do walk-in really well, like the two of them. Yeah. And people who do it, you know, kind of just wild and over the place. Sure. And there's some, I'll get the gravel. It's all about this gravel voice. Pow. Chuck, you know what I'm saying? Here's the thing. You know, and that, uh-huh. when I heard that, I think Jay Moore was the one that really got the gravel. Yeah, and, he was and good. I was like, whoa, yeah. that's it. Because uh-huh. he worked with him on, I think both of them worked on that movie Suicide Kings together. Yeah. Was, was Jay Moore? Oh, I knew Jay Moore was in that, but wasn't Kevin in that too, I think? Uh, I, think I can't remember. That. But regardless, I know they both all worked together. And, uh-huh. I, and I think that, just spending enough time together, like yeah. that's where it just seeps in fully, you know? Yeah, and I feel like uh, he, uh, Kevin may have mentioned this, um, that whenever you meet people that who you've done, you know, have you ever had that experience? Oh, yeah. I feel like they never <laughs> cop to the fact that you do it right. Yeah. Or I, for any impressionist, it's probably like, no, nah, you, you didn't quite get it. I made the mistake of doing my Larry David for Larry David once oh on God. pressure. And it, and it did, you know, he was he was polite about it, but he was like, eh, it, not your best. And it just it <laughs> did crush me. So after no, that experience. No, but that's such a Larry David thing to say. Yeah, yeah. What, he's not going to fawn over that. No. And he, and I just like, I'm never going to do that again. Actually, Norman on our show has been asking me to do, because he knows that I do an impression of him. And he's of been Norman Reedus? Me, uh-huh. <laughs> he's been asking me to do it for years. I'm like, I can't. Because if you don't like it, uh-huh. You're gonna you're gonna look at me different the rest of the, you're not gonna like me right you know can you do it for me now or no is, oh okay you, you <laughs> no. haven't publicly no. done that one no at all. No, no, no no gotcha no, no, no so you're avoiding any probably Walking Dead cast members yes correct all right I mean I've Fair I've enough. done Andy Lincoln and and Norman for many years before I even got on the show <laughs> yeah but I will never do it for them <laughs> who do you do it for just at home I've done I've done Norman for Andy oh, and a few okay. other cast members but. I've no, yeah. I don't. I don't mess with that. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? I I love well, Walken's great too. But I love like James Gandolfini, uh-huh. and McConaughey. McConaughey just has because he can make anything sound interesting. Yeah, he just has his way of like <laughs> getting right back into his voice right there in the back of the throat and just yeah. like pontificating about life. You know, <laughs> like I can't believe that we're here and we're we're recording sound. We're right here in the booth. It's all foam around us and it's real nice. Oh, you know, yeah. you're like, I could just listen to him talk all day. Me you know? too. I could listen to you talk like him all day. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, and that's one of the things too with an impression, like especially for comedians, um, you also have to be funny. Like you have to be good at it. You have to inhabit it. You uh-huh. have to be funny uh, or else it doesn't fly on mm. stage, I think. Right. And 
I've seen some impressionists that nail it, but they're it, it, to bring comedy into it. It's a whole different thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's it's. I I think it's it's going back to the cornerstone of good improv, which is just take these incredible actors and throw them into absurd situations. Mm -hmm. That's when the best stuff comes. Yeah. You know, Christopher Walken talking to his mechanic about, you know, his leaky brake fluid. Like, <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? It's leaking all over the floor. I can't be safe. You know, like, it's so stupid, but like, Man, you can just timber Im that you can imagine just walking, talking to his mechanic. Uh -huh. for, it's like, you know, getting into a fight about that and then talking about the Jets for, for an hour. Right. You know, like, did, did you know that uh, Pollock had a, a podcast called uh, Talkin' Walkin'? Oh, I think I, I heard about this, yeah. It was pretty short-lived. He didn't do it too long, but it was basically a show for, um, whatever, an hour where he would just be just have conversations with people as Christopher Walken. Oh, but just everyday shit, you know. I got to listen to that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I listened to a few after he told me about He's it. He's told me fun. some stories. Uh, Do you we guys were, know each other? Well, just tangentially. I mean, like, we worked together on this show that I did a few years ago called uh, Impress Me, and uh -huh. he was a guest star on that. And and then a, we did a podcast last year for Doug Benson. But, like, oh, he yeah, had sure. the best stories about Christopher Walken. Like, I yeah. would just be like... You know, kind of. I was the same way, man. Oh man, I, yeah. I love that. I love that stuff. You yeah, know? he's had such a wide-ranging career and worked with so many people. Like, yeah. I mean, he worked with Walter Matthau. Yeah, and oh right. Does Walter Matthau and worked with Alan Arkin? And Whoa, you're kind of crazy. Think about that. That's yeah, right. he was the one of the sons and uh, uh, dirty old or gr grumpy old <laughs> grumpy old. I think I'm dirty grandpa. Grumpy old men. Yeah, dirty old men. Dirty old grandpas. Uh, yeah. So, did you guys like bond over impressions or talk shop? Yeah. Is that what happens? Most definitely, yeah. And then the, sh the nature of that show impressed me was that we were two impressionists who were trying to be taken seriously oh, as okay. dramatic actors. Uh -huh. Irony of ironies. Um, and that was a show produced by Rain Wilson. So he was, I think he was friends with Kevin and he, you know, came on the show and uh -huh. it was, it was great because he's, he's a wealth of, of knowledge and a wealth of impressions, you know. Do you feel like you have to put a lot of work into it or do you, can you kind of do somebody pretty quickly okay some, and then work on it? Some people come relatively quick. Like I, I John C. Riley came oh, in, a, dude, in a... Your John C. Riley is ridiculous. Oh, thank you. I hope that's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's nuts because that voice is so iconic. Yeah. And that came to you quickly? Well, because I, I had just finished an audition for Nickelodeon for some cartoon. This was like five years ago. And then um, I got a call and they said, hey, uh, they want you to come back and do a voice match for uh, Wreck-It Ralph, mm -hmm. for John C. Riley. Can you do a John C. Riley?" And I was like, oh, I've never tried John C. Riley," And I really hadn't. I was like, oh, shit, what am I going to do? Right. And on the drive, I was like, okay, uh, I'll, I'll give my, give, do it my best, you know, whatever. And I just was driving over there as fast as I could. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Uh, oh, there, there it is. Kinda. And then I just kind of, you know, played around with, like, this gravelly, uh -huh. uh, you bet your bottom dollar. That's, that's what you're talking about right there. <laughs> and my, my, my Riley is definitely more Steve Brule. Um, uh, who sure, I but prefer. Yeah, uh, but, but, is the you best. know, I could definitely slip into a, just a normal, just John C. Riley right there. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, he's he's one of my favorites to do too. Oh man, yeah. I mean, I could do this for the next hour. Okay, but we've got to get into Die Hard. Let's get into Die Hard. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. So, yeah. Die Hard, 1988. I was a uh, junior in high school. Okay. Kind of prime time for Die Hard. Yeah. Uh, based on the novel Nothing Lasts Forever, uh, directed by John McTiernan, written by Jeb Stewart. Um, and Stephen D'Souza, right? Oh, was there a co-writer? I think, I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, hey. I, I could be I, wrong, but. I'd take your word for it. Oh, well. Yeah. That sounds, actually, that sounds familiar. Right. Um, I was a huge Moonlighting fan yeah. um, going oh. into this film. Very, very much into that show. Mm-hmm. And so... This was kind of the first big, big action or kind of big movie. I think he'd done like one other film. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, – they took a chance on Bruce Willis, which is kind of funny to think yeah. about now. Oh, it's hilarious. As the star of an action film. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember my first experience seeing it for some reason, but do you? Yeah. I, I saw it on TV, mm-hmm. uh, edited for TV. Um, oh, that's a shame. Truly, but at the same time, hilarious because my uh-huh. brothers and I, you know – we would sneak down and watch so much TV when we weren't supposed to. When yeah. my parents went to bed, that was when we life happened. Of, oh yeah, <laughs> like that was. I was raised on TV. Like my my parents did their best to make sure we went outside, and we did. Mom and Dad, I'm sorry if I'm, you know, they they were great parents, and they definitely, you know, made sure we got plenty of exercise and everything. But whenever possible, my brothers and I would be in front of that TV watching yeah. the Adams Family, watching Star Trek: Next Generation. Sure. You know everything we could get our hands on. We would watch, mm-hmm. and um, 
honestly, Die Hard would come on with some frequency, surprisingly. I mean, it was, I think it just did really well. Yeah. And so as long as it was edited for content, um, they just felt comfortable showing it, you know, once a month, it felt like on, on Channel 20, KTVD, uh, Denver. Yeah. Um, and, oh my gosh, I remember, I'll never forget that, that very first time I heard the iconic line from Bruce Willis, the yippee but they edited it for content, of course. What did they say? And it, 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 the, the funniest thing is, like, this is what I do now for work sometimes is voice matching. So, uh-huh. like, the guy they hired to do his voice match was <laughs> god-awful. Yeah. Sounded nothing like Bruce Willis. Oh, so you'll do stuff like that? Yeah, I do for, that like, a lot. like, airplane movies and... Yeah, precisely. Okay. Interesting. And, uh... <laughs> he, he, he's, it sounds, you know, it's just Bruce Willis. He's like, yippee And then you hear the dude who's doing his voice match go, Mr. Falcon. <laughs> like, didn't sound anything like Bruce like Willis. Like paging Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yippee Mr. Falcon. Like, Mr. Falcon. <laughs> so funny that yeah. that's what they choose. I mean, like, yeah, I suppose phonetically, and you look at his mouth, right, it's kind of, of like Mr. Falcon, but. I love that Mr. Falcon was the choice. Yeah, my buddy uh, you know? Brett and I always laugh at, at do the right thing on TV was Mickey Ficky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> instead of motherfucker. Uh, monkey Feather is off, uh-huh. oftentimes another one, like <laughs> snakes in a plane. For, yeah, so. Really? Well, monkey uh, Feather? Monkey Feather, yeah. That's hysterical. Uh, so. Yeah, which makes no sense. Right. Neither does Mr. Falcon, but. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yippee Mr. Falcon. Mr. Falcon, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. It should have just cut to a shot of. Uh, of Rickman just being like, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> no, does not compute. <laughs> I had a feeling you had some diehard in you, oh, yeah, impression-wise. <laughs> uh, so I was a huge Moonlighting fan. Obviously, Die Hard, right at the beginning of the movie, um, starts out with that. It's such an efficient script, mm. and it runs like a Swiss watch. From the very first scene... He sets up the fist with your toes. Fist with your toes. Which you don't know at the time yep. sets up a major, major plot point, which is why is he barefoot and what does that mean later on? There's foreshadowing throughout this film. Yeah. From Ode to Joy. Yeah. There's little, little, little just notes of Ode to Joy uh-huh. coming through yeah, yeah. about six times before it's finally, yeah. you know, the big reveal uh-huh. with, the, with, the, with the vault opening. Yep. But these beautiful little notes, just hints of Ode to Joy coming mm-hmm. through. And it's always when Rickman's I noticed there, that last night, too. You know? Yeah. And, and even when uh, uh, Argyle, uh-huh. the limo driver, he says, there's a great foreshadowing moment there when he's like, you know, so you're going to, he's playing... <laughs> the song and he's like so what are you gonna do you're gonna you know music's gonna fade up and you're gonna run into her arms and, and right and then he's like something like that argyle you know <laughs> and of course what happens at the end of the movie it's, yeah there's, there's foreshadowing throughout the script is so taut like mm-hmm. you said and it's it's so well written yeah the editing is on point mm-hmm. sound design's perfect um both the music and the and the, and the sound effects both practical and, and after the fact like yeah it's it's just I, I I I go I stand by this like I believe this is the best action movie of all time, for yeah, various reasons. Sure, yeah, and it, and that's what hit me last night too because it's one of a hundred eighties slash mid nineties action films. Yeah, but it cut through all the chaff and stands alone, or you know almost alone, mm-hmm. and you have to look at it and say why. And when you watch it, it it's because it's great. It's yeah. great acting. It's the script is like you said, just so tight. The editing is perfect. Everything, everything worked. It's no accident that Die Hard became Die Hard. Yeah, and I and I think it's it's the perfect protagonist too. Yeah, uh, 
and the, the perfect setup mm-hmm. because you have this man, you, you know going into the story within the first five or ten minutes yep. that this is a protagonist who is separated from his wife. Mm-hmm. They have a very contentious relationship. They're trying to make it work. He's a New York cop. He's a New York cop. He's got a backlog yeah. of all these, you know, <laughs> thugs that he's got to put behind bars. Uh-huh. He can't just pick up and move. And but but you know, as Argyle points out, you're like, oh, so you just thought that she was gonna, right. you know, try this job out and move right back to New York. Yeah. And then it turned into a great career. And he's like, you're very perceptive, Argyle. Right. You know. <laughs> and it, it, there's hurt. There's hurt coming through John McClane from yeah. the moment he arrives on screen. Mm-hmm. He. You know, from the, mo- the oh, I'm, I'm geeking out on this so hard. <laughs> when he gets to Nakatomi Tower, yeah, and he's entering the touchscreen, the touchscreen. F- fast forward to the iPad. I know. Fifteen years later, they they portended that. You yeah. know, well, they even felt a need to reference it, like oh, like oh, cute he's machine cute or toy. cute yeah. toy. Yeah, and of course, he finds that she's not registered under Holly McLean. Right. She's registered under Holly Gennaro. Yeah. Big deal. Big huge point. slap in the face. Uh-huh. He's like, yeah, we're separated, but we're not divorced. Mm-hmm. And you just, wow. Yeah. And and the moment he sees her, he's he's elated. He's dealing with this asshole Ellis, mm-hmm. who's like the epitome of American greed and arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> the um, great Hart Bachner. Oh God, he, <laughs> he's so good. Like, in this. Th- there are so many perfect villains in this. Yeah. Besides, Hans Gruber, the, Alan Rickman. I think this is the best work he's ever done, uh-huh. and I think he is arguably the best villain of all time in yeah, this man. movie. But you also have Hart. Uh-huh. You have you have Ellis, of course. You have uh, Richard Thornburg, mm-hmm. the asshole movie producer yeah. or a TV producer who also shows up in Ghostbusters. Yeah, Paul Gleason. Exactly. Oh, Paul Gleason, uh-huh. of course. <laughs> I mean, like the list. Oh, and Robert Davies. Uh-huh. Robert Davi. Davi. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Davy. Robert Davey. Yeah, you know, the, the FBI the, guys. Uh, big, big, a little Johnson. Yeah, Asian uh-huh. Johnson. Um, and like, so all of and these. And Carl, the worst baddie of them all. Oh, Carl. And is Carl. Of course. Alexander Gudinov. Yeah. Who is also in uh, Witness. <laughs> yeah. I realized that when I was watching. I was like, why do I know him? And he was in Witness with uh-huh. Harrison Ford. And like, he has that big moment with the, uh, they're in the, in the middle of town and they get picked on by the, you know, the, the oh, asshole yeah. rednecks. Uh-huh. Or, and they're like. And he goes, you know, he's a pacifist. Like, yeah. He like, grabs Harrison Ford's arm. He's like, it's not our way. Right. And Harrison's like, it's my way. You know, and just like, this fight erupts. And it's just like these, oh, and, and uh, oh, God, what was his name? I, I wrote this down too. Um, uh, uh, oh, gosh, where is it? Where is it? Um, one of the terrorists is. Uh, you mean one of the Wil- Benetton models? Wil- yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, Wilhelm von, Wilhelm von Hamburg uh-huh. was Vigo in Ghostbusters 2. Oh, really? I couldn't believe it. I was like, I know this guy, but I don't yeah. know how. But of course, Vigo, who's in the painting and uh-huh. who comes to life, like, I, I was like, why do I know this guy? And I looked up on IMDb and I was like, oh my goodness. That's crazy. But, um, you know, anyway, but I'm, I'm sidetracking, but like, from the moment he first sees him in the office, they're elated. They're happy to see each other. They finally get a chance yeah. to talk. You know, where are you going to sleep tonight? He doesn't even know if he's going to be sleeping at yeah. his house to yeah. see his kids. She it's says, Christmas like, make Eve. up the guest room. Right. But but even then, she's like, where are you going to sleep tonight? He's like, I'm going to yeah. sleep at my, my old captain's house. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, you could always come over to ours. He's like, oh, you know, I don't know. He's like, yeah. I'm not you sure that's a good idea. And, <clears throat> you know, then he's like, you know, I, I really missed you. And he's like. Yeah, but you didn't miss my last name, apparently. He's instantly kind of pissed. Instantly pissed and instantly goading her. Yep. And they have this fight, and it's just heartbreaking because yeah. as soon as it's over, she has to go talk to the troops, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, she's called out by her secretary to go and, you know, rally everybody. And 
he immediately regrets it. Yep. He immediately hits his head against the door yeah. and is like, fuck. It says so much about the state of their marriage. Yeah. Like you instantly, instantly get it. Yep. And um, he, especially he, if you're married or been in a long-term relationship, you're like that thing that I feel like guys do where you're like, fuck man, I, can I take back the last 10 seconds? Yeah. Because I was just such a dumbass. Because guys have a tendency to act. This is why I love this movie so much. Guys have a tendency to act tough mm-hmm. and feel like they have to be in control all the time. Yep. But when they're genuinely hurt by something, mm-hmm. they don't talk about it <laughs> until it's time to really talk about it. And yeah. then it erupts and then they overstep their bounds and they put their foot in their mouth and they're like, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. I didn't mean to say that. Mm-hmm. God damn it. I wish I could take that back. Yep. But that's the last time he sees her before yeah. the terrorists arrive. Yeah. Okay. So he's barefoot. He's in his, his toes. He's in his A shirt. <laughs> he's got his trousers on, but that's it. Yeah. He's got his pistol, and he's only got, you know, full mag, luckily. But, like, sure. that's it. Yep. And then shit ha- hits the fan. And well, he's yeah. instantly running up the staircase. Yeah, he goes into to cop <clears throat> mode. Yeah. And uh, that ticking clock starts. And I was thinking last night, what a brilliant— because everyone thinks they're terrorists. That's sort of the, the, the switch of this movie. Right. Uh, they, they pretend to be terrorists to throw them off the scent that they're really just thieves. But— uh, I'm an exceptional thief. I'm an exceptional thief. But it was brilliant to make that choice, uh, and I, I think that was the case in the in the novel. But because what that does is is their uh, their their robbery has a, a ticking clock. Yeah, it has an endpoint, and there's a timer going basically, mm-hmm. and that just sets the timer for the movie. And any you know anytime anyone's done any screenwriting, like you know, if, especially a movie like this, yeah, like a ticking clock is a big dramatic device. Definitely. And if they had been terrorists, they wouldn't have had that ticking clock necessarily. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that the, the tension and the timeline that builds throughout is what makes you sympathize even more with John. Yeah. Because <clears throat> throughout, this is a man who, I mean, he started out vulnerable. As the movie goes on, he gets more and more vulnerable. I mm-hmm. love the sound. Like, Bruce Willis does not get enough credit for his, his role in this. Yeah. He makes so many strong choices mm-hmm. about sounds like he whimpers. Yeah. He whimpers when he gets hit sometimes. Yeah, yeah. He winces in pain, not just when he's pulling glass out of his foot, uh-huh. but when, when he's getting hit in the arm. And I think Bruce Willis must have had an actual solar, shoulder surgery uh-huh. because you can see that in his arm clearly. Yeah. I think that there, I've seen him in other movies. It looks like he must have had a shoulder surgery. And when he gets punched there, uh-huh. you almost wonder if Bruce Willis is actually crying out in real pain. Yeah. When Gudnov and him are, you know, going at it. On he, the, he's, on not, the, he's not the larger than life action star. He's a guy that feels pain, gets hurt, yes. shows that he's emotionally hurt begin at the beginning, which yeah. maybe kind of sets that up. And I would argue that this is the first and maybe the last time in cinema history that we really have a strong yet vulnerable uh, protagonist mm-hmm. who is not getting punched and kicked in the face a thousand times and getting up like nothing happened. Yeah. He is crying several times throughout this movie. Yeah. He is getting close to his, you know, newfound partner and uh-huh. Al Powell. Sergeant Al Powell, the, the lovely Reginald Vell Johnson. Oh, I man. wish he had been in a number of other movies like this. Yeah. He did great on Family Members, too, but um, I would have loved to have seen him in more roles like sure. this. But uh, he has this kinship with a man he cannot see until yeah. the end of the movie. They're having this, you know, budding bromance, mm-hmm. you know, for over the walkie-talkie. Yeah. And even even Gruber points out, touching Mr. McLean. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know, it's just like there's so many moments where you get yeah. to see this guy crack, and he he apologizes to Powell. He's like, 
do you do me a favor if I don't make it out of this alive? You know, you tell Holly, like, yeah. Um, I'm sorry I was such an asshole. I'm oh, sorry man. she's a schmuck. And, um, you know, yeah. I tried, you know, and such he's, a great moment. he's crying. Yeah. And it's real tears. Like Bruce Willis, he brings his A game yeah. in those moments. And that's what makes it pop. That's what makes this movie so beautiful uh -huh. is that it's not just some guy who's constantly in charge, constantly knows what to do. Right. He's figuring it out at every step of the way. How many terrorists are there? Where are they? What's their When ending? he's writing it down on his arm. That's Marco. such a great little Six. tasty bit that yeah. they threw in there. Oh. I mean, it's he's a detective. Yeah. He's a cop. He's figuring stuff out. Yeah, yeah. And um, He doesn't have all the answers. He's no. not too cool. Uh, he's, he's not. Yeah. And he, um, I think, I think uh, the moment he finds that the radio, mm. like before that point, I think he's, I think it's underrated what a great acting job he's doing because he's by himself. Yeah. And there are a couple of moments where he's talking to himself, which is a, a very hard thing to pull off because people don't do that in real life. Yeah. But, you know, think, John, think, you know, why, did, why didn't you step in there? Because you'd, you'd be dead too, you'd asshole. You'd be dead too, asshole. <laughs> yeah. And, like, people don't do that. And it's hard to pull off in a movie. Yeah. But he does. I never thought about it for a second. Yeah. But he's by himself for that whole first part. Then he gets that radio and he gets that landline, that connection uh -huh. to Al. And it, it just grounds it so much character-wise uh, from that point forward, you know. And... For the first time now, he gets to interact with, with Hans. Yeah. Which is, I mean, their oh. back and forth are just classic. The Bill Clay. Yeah. He's, he's like, come up with his name. What's your name? Bill Clay. <laughs> yeah. Bill Clay. And it's like, it's, it's funny because it's Rickman being, you know, an Englishman who's doing his best German accent while also infusing <laughs> it with this, like, hi, I'm Bill Clay. You know? It's such a bad it's, accent, but maybe that's the point. I know, and it's wonderful because it's, it's, it's so, it's so, it's, it's, it's Hans trying yeah. desperately to, uh -huh. to pass himself off as, oh, no, you're one of them. Oh, God. It almost it sounds so like John corny. Hurt, like in, in Alien. Yeah. Oh, no, you're one of them, you know. And and he has this this real Hans has this moment of vulnerability where uh -huh. he's like, oh, don't kill me, don't kill me. Yeah, and and it's just these every little moment is just so well played out. And the, the thing that also struck me when I watched it again this morning was like, it's funny as hell. Oh yeah, from the moment you're saying like fucking California. Yep. And you know when he's no, I know the TV dealer feels like he's trapped. In the, uh, come out to the coast, have a few laughs. Well, that Obviously. line I remember being a kid and seeing that. Uh, come out to the coast, have a few laughs. Yeah. And that that made me laugh so hard because there hadn't been a ton of funny stuff up until that point. Uh huh. And I just remember that being such a release for the audience. Yeah. Of like, oh my god, like we kind of needed that laugh <laughs> right. in that moment. And you get to see the villains be vulnerable and real too. Yeah. So like. Oh, by the way, does the does the receptionist not look like Huey Lewis? <laughs> yeah, like he I totally was looks blown like away. <laughs> and, I, and I've said this before, but when I watched it, I was like, man, he, I, I honestly, when the first time I watched, it, I was like, is Huey Lewis one of the terrorists? But it's not. Apparently. It's like he's done some acting. Yeah, but um, when Uli, you know, the 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 long haired terrorist, he they're they're like getting ready to like square off with the the cops who are about to you yeah know, you know wage war and come in through the the main lobby. They're all they've got their rifles all trained at the ready, uh -huh. and uh, he he sets himself up by the snack bar. Yeah, and it's just like this <laughs> random moment where he's like, he needs a snack. So he reaches on there and grabs yeah. some junior mints or whatever. Those little and, touches, man. And, and the, the cops who are storming the castle, and one of them gets caught on a thorn. <laughs> yeah. He gets caught on a rose thorn. He's, he's like, ow. Uh -huh. It's like, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. not everybody's, no no one is that tough. Uh -huh. No one is that strong. No one is that much of a badass. I love Jason Statham movies for what they are. But that dude, 
gets kicked in the face a hundred yeah. times. He's he's getting thrown out of planes. He's getting thrown off of cliffs. Uh-huh. He's like, yeah, I'm fine. No <laughs> worries. Okay. But it's like, and that's awesome. Uh-huh. Good for him. Yeah. And, and I love Rambo. I love, they all have a place. Uh-huh. Schwarzenegger in Predator, also a John McTiernan film, my second favorite action film, but for different reasons. Just Pre- Predator is? Predator, yeah, uh-huh. most definitely. Yeah. But because of how that's shot and the, the action in that is perfect. Yeah. But every single one of those dudes, Carl Weathers, Jesse Ventura, right. you know. Uh, Trying to out-tough one another. They're out-toughing each other, yeah. which is awesome and a totally different kind of movie. But this movie excels because it is a whole bunch of people, especially John McClane, who are showing their vulnerability. Yeah. And that is beautiful. Yeah. And it's not ever been done since i don't think i really don't think it's ever been done before or since you know yeah yeah there is a definite it's it's sort of a brave thing to do to show the warts and the vulnerabilities of your supposed tough hero and protagonist yep and that's why it worked because you can relate it's relatable all of a sudden yeah and the character is a little more complex but he still has his like the action movie lines they still give him that stuff oh yeah which is great yeah, you okay, know. Mr. Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk for a moment about the uh, about Hart Bachner, and uh, and the in the scene, his greatest scene, you know, Hans Booby, <laughs> like that great great I scene. I mean, White Knight. Yeah, like, I mean, oh. he, he does a couple of bumps of blow before <laughs> yeah. he goes in there, and the and the hilarious irony of the terrorist offering him a Coca Cola oh, right. right after he's done a blow. I didn't even notice that. That's it's so like, funny. Just like here you go, here's some more Coke. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I never noticed that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like he's a jackass. He's he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. But there's still something about him where like you don't want him to die. No, no. You, and you know, I think as soon as he goes in there, this is not going to go well. And John knows that. McLean knows that. Yeah. And you hear his desperation. Like, dude, like, I think you're an asshole, but fucking get out of there. Yeah. Like, you don't know what you're dealing with. Right. And Such I, a good scene. It's beautiful. And and there's that tense moment where he's like, John. Yeah. <laughs> he's like looking at Hans. He gets Hans, a little sad. Like, he's oh, like, shit. And he takes that last sip of Coca-Cola, his last Coca-Cola. He knows leg, it, too. And then, bam. Yeah. You know, it's over. And you had, and, and they had, you know, established right out of the gate, which was uh, very important, I think. The first thing that happens is Alexander Gudinoff m- murders two people. Right. So that really sets the stakes. Like, these guys are not fucking around. No. They're not there to negotiate their way through this. They will kill anybody for any reason. Yep. Just very simply because in those first scenes, like, it's way too much trouble to tie these guys up mm-hmm. and duct tape their mouth. Like, let's just kill them. Yeah. And problem solved. Right. And I and I, and I I love that there there's so many different personalities within the terrorist group. I mean, like. Yeah. Uh, or isn't that they're obviously not terrorists. They're, they're, it's they're hard bad, to not say that. The though. bad guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've got Theo, who's the brains of the operation, this God, incredible computer. My wife last night, she was like, man, he's such a dick. <laughs> Theo? He's so smarmy. Well, he's oh. smarmy through the whole thing. I love I, I, Do you I, like I, him? I thought he was endearing, <laughs> yeah. I, I really liked him because I, I thought that he – even those moments where he's like, oh, and the quarterback is toast. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, he, he had some great one-liners too, and Argyle's great. I mean, like, the the the, the scene where I mean, obviously he takes out, you know, Argyle. Argyle takes him out at the end. Uh-huh. This is this lovely little, like, Argyle feels like a badass because he comes yeah. in and just punches him. Um, 
but uh, everybody has these little idiosyncrasies. Uh-huh. Like Gudnov, of course, is like this stoic, yeah. just like the epitome of like German or, you know, uh, Eastern European, just like I feel no pain. Let's just kill yeah. everybody. And I'm not going to run around and do it. I'm going to walk like very slowly <laughs> through the room with my gun. Like a snake. Yeah. He, he's like a snake. Um, and somehow he survives being, you know, yeah. choked with a chain. And <laughs> For 10 minutes. Marco is this like, I see you. You know, he's got this like, I, with no more table. You know, like. That's just such a great part. Crazy. Like, there, there's so many random, yeah. wonderful. Uh, his brother, what's Carl's brother's name? Uh, uh, the, the first kill. The first kill with the glasses. Yeah. He looks, he looks like a mannequin. Nobody, he's such a nobody chiseled, is coming to rescue you. Yes. Yeah, so nobody's coming. And, and then just. Like the, everybody has these wonderful outfits, the 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 the, the costume design, uh-huh. the, the 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 attention to detail from everybody, yeah. is so specific. Yeah, and they hired uh, the the Huey Lewis character, <laughs> obviously because we need a passable American because we can't all be. Yeah, and Theo's obviously American too, but we can't all be Eastern European. Right. We have to have some that are passably American because yeah. you need to be right. the voice for us. You need to be able to, like, represent us when someone eventually comes. Yeah. Like, oh, no, it was a false alarm. Don't you worry, you know. I got my cowboy boots on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He's watching the game and— USC versus Notre Dame, I think, right? Yeah. Boy. Think, yeah. Good game. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, uh, of course, the—I um, know we're jumping all over the place, but yeah, sorry. the way they introduced—no, uh, no, no, this is this is how it goes— um, the way they introduce Al Powell oh. in, in the in the Quickie Mart or whatever, getting his uh, his load, his stash of donuts and yep. little Debbies, and uh, just his his interplay, just all the little moments of this movie are so great. Just yep. that little scene is great. He's, he's his interplay uh, with the, the cashier. He knows every ingredient in the Twinkie. Yeah, you know he's he's like <laughs> bag it, <laughs> bag it, double bag. It. He's like big time. Yeah, you know? it almost sounds that cashier almost sounds like Jesse Ventura's like big time. Yeah, you know. Um, but it, it is those little moments, those little human funny moments. Uh-huh. Like even even with the Johnsons when they're in the helicopter, and he's like, ah, this reminds me of Saigon. Yeah, and he's like a hey, slick, and he's like. I was in junior high, big yeah, head. Like, yeah. you know, like there's, there's just these little. I, I don't know if it was all beautifully scripted like that. I have to imagine it was, but yeah. like, there's if there's moments of improv, good for them too, because like everybody had these beautiful little moments, mm-hmm. these little tight little bit acting choices and and lines that were that just added an air of reality to it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think that's why lines like Hans Booby like. All these years later is so quotable, yep. and even the part, and maybe it's because we heard it twice with the the recording that the reporter heard. But you know, they're turning my car into Swiss cheese. Yeah, like that whole moment is so classic. So it's now, it's, God damn it, now! <laughs> yeah. And he drives backwards off the thing. And I have to imagine that Bruce Willis was allowed to ad lib a lot of the curse words. When, especially when he's fighting. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if – because I, I, I actually turned on the subtitles this morning. I've never done that before. Oh, interesting. But you, you hear so much more. Right. Or you, you see so much more, uh-huh. I guess, because you're you're actually able to read the text. But he says to Carl while he's beating him up in that final, you know, fi- fight sequence, he's like, I'm going to – I'm going to – Fucking kill you! Yeah. I'm gonna chop you up. I'm gonna cook you. I'm gonna eat you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fuck it. Like it's like he's like I'm gonna chop you. I'm gonna cook you up, and I'm gonna eat you. I bet you improv. It was that. like yeah. I, I feel like uh-huh. what? Yeah. You know, as as you're getting punched in the face, like yeah. it's it's just 
brutal. And and the fight sequence remind me a lot of uh, Mean Streets, mm. which is one of my favorite yeah, uh, Scorsese films because in the fighting in that too, it's mm-hmm. sloppy as hell. Yeah. When you get punched in the face, I don't care who you are. I've been punched in the face. I don't know about you, but it's not <laughs> it's not a fun feeling. Yeah. And you, you know, especially if you get punched in the nose, your vision gets da- sure. blurry, your eyes start to water, you're kind of thrown out. No one can take that many punches and be fine. Yeah. You know, e- even the Krav Maga guys who are, you know, getting like trained to get punched in the neck and the face over and over again. Yeah. Even you will have a visceral reaction. Yeah. So I love that there are moments of real, not just emotional vulnerability, but physical vulnerability yeah. from from everybody, not just not just John McClane, but uh-huh. but also the villains. Yeah, you feel the pain of certainly of Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. but uh, and, and even with the with the feet in the glass, like oh. she's Dame Vinsta, like you you know yeah. what's, what they're doing. He sees what they're doing, and I think it was such a brilliant choice to not show him walking over the glass. Yep, you know he's going to do it, and then the next shot you see of him is picking glass out of his feet. Because there's no choice. It's a trial by so many fi- trial by fire. Literally, literally. <laughs> it's 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 a he has to go. I mean, it's almost. I would love to break this down from like a religious allegory standpoint. Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like John McClane is this everyman hero who's so flawed. Uh-huh. He's not a perfect man. He's made a lot of mistakes. He's said a lot of stupid shit. He's he's as as Al Powell says. He's alone, tired, and he hasn't seen diddly squat from anyone down here. Yeah. He, everyone feels like he's fucking it up, mm-hmm. up up on tower or on floor 30 to 37 yeah. on Nokotomi Tower. And he's not getting any love. He's not getting any love whatsoever. Yeah. He says, I'm feeling kind of underappreciated right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> and and uh, I just, I think that he's gone through all these trials. And at the end, there's this beautiful moment where he reunites with Holly and it's it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It is. The payoff is is worth it and and she does a great job too. Yeah, Bonnie Bedelia. Bonnie Bonnie Bedelia was fantastic. Big shout out to her. Fantastic in that role. Yeah. You know. She was. And um you know, we were talking about he's he doesn't have it all figured out, but he's always just one step ahead whether it's the the Bill Clay scene mm-hmm. with you know, he's onto it because you know, he sees the clay on the board. Right. Which, a bit of a stretch, maybe. Yeah, was it William Clay, wasn't it? I think like, It said W.M. Clay. W.M. Clay, yeah, yeah. Um, Clay. Bill Clay. Yeah. <laughs> but he manages to, uh, to out-cop them, to mm-hmm. out-cop their robber. Yeah. But, but you never get the sense. It's not slick, and it's not like, I'm the guy with all the answers. Yeah. Like, you feel the struggle the entire time. Right. It's not a foregone conclusion, like no. most action films. In, in most action films, you know the protagonist is going to win. And even in this, you know because most of these stories end with a happy ending that this guy's right. going to win. But you you really do struggle with him because he has to work for it. Yeah, John McClane is working his ass off. Yeah, to get there, and it's and called Die Hard. It's called Die Hard, man. <laughs> you know that title. Yeah. It's and you know you just throw it around these days. Die Hard, mm-hmm. Die Hard. But it's such a great title. It really is. You know. Yeah. It just spells it out. Yeah. Uh, and then one of to me one of the great. Uh, one of the great stunts in Hollywood history is the the fire hose scene. Oh my gosh! Uh, it's just it's perfect. I mean, the I, I and that's the thing. Like I, I've I've seen a lot of movies in the last ten years where you where it's CGI heavy, mm-hmm. and sometimes they do it very very well. Yeah, and you don't see the strings, and sometimes you see it. You know, and you know they're spending millions of dollars on this, mm-hmm. millions and millions of dollars, and it looks like garbage. Yeah. And I and for those people, I say, you know, 
safety being first and foremost sure. of, of penultimate importance, fine. But like, let's make sure, or ultimate importance rather. Um, <laughs> I always would say, yeah, penultimate is the second to last. Um, we need to make sure that we believe this. Mm. So as long as we're doing everything right from a safety perspective, um, can we make sure that the audience goes there with us? Mm-hmm. Can we make sure that we're not having the audience in their chairs being like, oh, I kind of saw the strings with that one. Right. I don't really know if I buy that. Yeah. Because it takes you out of it. Yeah, and it's all over after that. It's all over. Yeah. When John jumps off the roof and goes down presumably 10 or 15 uh-huh. floors yeah. or so, you know, off this massive balcony and, and luckily gets, you know, caught in that uh, jetty, you know, it's like you believe it. Mm-hmm. You believe every moment, and even when he pushes off yeah. and shoots the glass, so great, and then goes flying through it, and then he's you know getting pulled off. Yeah, you believe every moment. Oh, uh-huh. it's, and even when Hans falls, yeah, I still don't know how they did that. I mean, such I, an iconic I shot. I have to believe that the, not only when, the wide shot when you see him falling. That's a, one of the great falls. Too. I think that that's a real person. I, could yeah, be wrong. I think it is. Um, it's probably an airbag fall. I have to, I, I would imagine, because the, the arms are flailing. Oh, yeah, man. I can't imagine that was an animatronic robot. I think uh-huh. that was a real person, unless it was just an incredible dummy that was that they rigged to, to move a no, certain way. I bet way. it was. But even the, the bird's eye view shot uh-huh. of John looking down <laughs> yeah. on Hans, of all this, you know, you know destruction beneath, mm. it's like Hans is literally going to descend into hell. Yeah. And he's looking up just in super <laughs> slow-mo, and he's about to get the shot off. And then that moment where he gets Holly's watch off. Yeah. And it's fully acknowledged in that split second in Hans's brain that it's over. Uh-huh. Like, once the watch is off, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And it's that oh shit moment. Mm-hmm. And it reads so beautifully on his face. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could have met Alan before he passed so that I could have just thanked him for this role yeah. alone. And and for moments like that, because like that's what made me want to be an actor, being able to in whatever the scenario, like uh-huh. believably take the audience to the place you need to go to, so that they feel something that visceral. Because right. for me, I don't know about you, but I have a massive fear of of falling. I have dreams about falling all the time. Oh, interesting. I don't know what that means, but um, constantly waking up where I feel like I've been falling. Uh-huh. And the, the this the the great maybe it came from this movie I don't know because it left such an impression but like the constant fear of like losing the ground beneath you yeah and knowing on some level that you're going to die yeah because you're alive on the way down yeah and the acceptance of that yeah do you embrace it do you you know that's got to be the scariest thing on the planet yeah and he it, conveyed that so it's, beautifully it's, I've got four seconds to live yeah or depending on where you're falling from and he's thwarted yeah and his brilliant brilliant plan is over yeah and he lost because of a a gun taped to the, <sighs> to the back of the protagonist and that's the other thing too like john is constantly figuring out ways to make this work mm-hmm. he's in an impossible situation but he only has his one pistol he doesn't have a right. whole bunch of weapons. He he accumulates more as time goes on. He obviously gets the C4. He gets the, the, yeah. uh, the uh, some automatic rifles. It's almost like a video game at times in that way, yeah. like collecting the weapons. Yeah, it's like Wolfenstein. You start out with the, right. the crappy little P38, and then yeah. you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? Yeah. And you collect some frag grenades. You're like, oh, great. Right, right. And then you're like, oh, cool, bazooka, great. And uh-huh. a shotgun, nice, nice. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, it's it's beautiful in that regard, and and he's figuring it out. He's he's piecing it all together. Like, how do I make this work? The first nine one one call didn't work. 
Maybe I can get on the walkie and do, get over to dispatch again. Yeah. And, you throw know. Throw a fucking guy out the window. Throw a guy out the window. <laughs> hit Al's car. Uh-huh. I didn't think he needed to shoot up Al's car, though. Like, that was excessive. <laughs> like, I was like, John, you made your point when you threw a guy out the window on yeah, his hood. Like, you could have just left it there. I don't think he needed to be shooting up the top of his, like, that was excessive. And I think he could have actually killed or, you know, very seriously hurt uh, yeah. Al. So I think that was excessive, but um, he needed to get his point across, I suppose. Well, you're so into at the, all in at this movie uh, that at the end, when he shoots both the guys, mm-hmm. you totally buy him blowing the smoke from the gun <laughs> yeah. like an old Western and yeah. saying, yippee-ki, uh, Mr. Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the foot. Watching it again, like, I forgot how long they laugh at that line. Yeah. When, when Rickman's like, what was it you said to me again? Yippee-ki-ki. Motherfucker, yeah, and he says it with this weird like motherfucker, uh-huh. and it's and it's and then they have this like thirty second laugh like break where yeah. they're like, <laughs> right, right, and it's just and then Huey Lewis, I don't, I forgive me, I don't know that actor's name, but the Huey Lewis uh, uh, lookalike is standing there, and they all just start laughing, and Bonnie Bedelia is like, what the fuck yeah. is going on? Why are you all laughing at this? Like, I'm pretty sure one of us or a few of us are going to die in this moment. Yeah, they do and take it to an extreme level, to an extreme level, but it somehow works and. Yeah. And then that moment where he just goes, Holly reaches behind his his neck, grabs the gun. She sees it coming in the ducks. Boom, Huey Lewis, you're dead. Shoots Hans in the chest. Yeah. Over. Such a such a uh, cathartic ending. Mm. Well, what you think is the ending. What you think, but good enough. Man. He's good enough for me. <laughs> I'll tell you, that guy. <laughs> oof. He's 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 hung by the neck for for in in real time, probably ten or fifteen minutes. Yeah. Because everyone's there, and he's talking to Al, and, well, yeah. the brilliance, too, of, of giving Al the truly heroic moment. Yeah. I mean, you, you didn't even need to do all that. No. Nope. But that just adds another layer, because we hear the story about why he is uh, uh, has been removed, I guess. From active duty, yeah. Yeah, from active duty, because he shot the kid, and that beautiful shot of the gun barrel lowering and that rack mm. focus to uh, to his face. And he, Reginald Vell Johnson has so much emotion in that moment, oh, too. So much. It's it's a cathartic moment for him of like, I save the day and I also redeem myself yep. in the eyes of myself and probably the force and maybe obviously saving John and, and yeah. Holly, but like, he needed that. He did. He killed a kid accidentally. Right. You know, and I'm sure the weight of that, the guilt of that yeah. has been so squarely in him for so many years. And th- in this moment, he finally gets to let it go. Yeah. Ugh. Well, and everyone gets their moment. Like, but but it never feels like, oh, just let me tidily tie this up. Right. Like, Argyle gets his moment. Yeah. Al gets his moment. Bonnie Bedelia. Holly gets her moment. Punches uh, the reporter. With Thornburg, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. everyone, <laughs> it, it just, everyone gets their little moment in the end. I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I feel like this movie portended or maybe even, like, gave the idea to, like, Rupert Murdoch. Of like twenty four seven news coverage. Oh, interesting. You know, because yeah. like this was like the first movie that I can think of where we, we see media so uh, clearly having a presence throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's going back to the studio with that idiot asshole, eat, hair, eat it, Harvey, Harvey, <laughs> Harvey yeah, Harvey. You know, as in Stockholm, Finland, right. or uh, Sweden, uh, Finland. Oh, actually, really funny. you know, um, like. <laughs> Just these wonderful little moments of, like, making sure that the media is an ever-present part of the storyline because then we get to yeah. see a different side of it. And then you get to see 
uh, the kids at home mm-hmm. with, with with the nanny, and and you Holly realizes like you just jeopardized all of our lives because you wanted a story, mm-hmm. because you wanted to you know win a win a Pulitzer for this, and. I'm going to, or Peabody, whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, and you're going to jeopardize my life. And she just has this moment. She comes up and clocks. And yeah. Like, Brilliant. <laughs> it's great. And then Thorne was like, did you get that? You yeah, know, like, yeah. Just, and I, and I, I just think this movie, like, really was so revolutionary and, and genuinely predicted a lot of things that were going to happen. It predicted the iPad. Uh-huh. <laughs> it predicted 24-7 news coverage. Yeah. Um, it predicted Bruce Willis's career, obviously. Yeah, launched him and did um, superstardom. Superstardom. Yeah. And I love that, like, he's even referencing Ram. There, there's references to Rambo, uh-huh. Schwarzenegger. There's, like, Roy Rogers, obviously, yep. Gary Cooper. There's references to Hollywood within the movie, which uh-huh. usually makes me cringe. Yeah, yeah. But in this, it works. Mm-hmm. Somehow. Yeah. Well, because you're all in. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. What a great movie. It's the best. It's the best... Action movie of all time, one of the best Christmas movies of all time. Yeah. It is my favorite Christmas song of all time. Yeah, Ode to Joy. People, oh, no, no. Oh. Christmas and Hollis. Oh, okay. Yeah. By Run DMC. <laughs> yeah. That is my favorite Christmas song of all time. Because uh-huh. most Christmas music in my mind is kind of awful. Yeah. But like this, this song is brilliant. And just like the way you started out with Argyle putting this on in the yeah. limo, driving into the sunset of, of uh, West LA. Yeah. Nakatomi Tower in the distance. Yeah. Oh, gorgeous. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. That, like fire red sky. Yeah. All that pollution that just makes yeah. the sunset <laughs> just really pop, you know? Oof. Boy, did we do it? I mean. You got anything else on your list? Gosh, I, I could talk about this for hours, but I think that's, that's, that's most of what I got to, I think. That I, epic fight with Carl, man, that thing's intercut. It feels like it takes 15 minutes. Hmm. So great. Yeah. I, I, I really don't have much more to add. I, I just think it's a perfect movie. Yeah. I mean, there's there's little things that you could nitpick and, and be like, no, I didn't really buy that hit. Or, you know, when... when when I think I know what you're about to say. Go ahead. Well, when, then the staircase, when he kills... The, the there's some the bad stunt doubling in that shot. Well, also, there's like... <laughs> when they add the sound effect for his neck breaking, it uh-huh. comes too late. So it, it doesn't make sense. Like, it should have yeah. happened on a step prior. And it's almost a minor Wilhelm scream. Right. It's going like, ugh. <laughs> and then, but, but if, if they had just moved that sound effect uh, a second earlier, it would have yeah. worked. But, yeah, but these are nitpicky things. Sure. Like, and it's kind of funny as an adult to be like, oh, my God, this is like the stunt doubles are terrible in right. that shot. But also, you but still buy it. But as a kid, I didn't notice it. You yeah, know? and, and the good, the, when, when, when Hans says to Carl, like, we're back in business. And Carl does this like Vida Sassoon turn to the camera with his blonde flowing hair just uh-huh. all over the place. Yeah, yeah. It's so extra. It's so yeah. unnecessary. I know. But you're like, God, I love it. I don't know why I love it. It's it's those McTiernan moments. Mm-hmm. Like we know in Predator when Jesse Ventura would pull out the minigun and be like, son of a bitch is dead. You know, like yeah. these, these like tiny little moments that are so macho and unnecessary. Uh-huh. But when coupled with and in, in sharp contrast to the vulnerability of our protagonist, yeah. you're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's ridiculous and I love it. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's just, I, I it's one of those few movies, like this movie is not my favorite film of all time. That's mm. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right. But this is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah. And this is a movie that if it's on, unless I have to go to work mm-hmm. or unless there's a, a pressing engagement, I have to stop what I'm doing and I watch all of Die Hard. Yeah. It's one it. of those for me too. Yeah. Did you see any of the sequels? Oh yeah, of course. I yeah. thought the third one with Sam Jackson was really good. Also directed by John McTiernan. Oh, okay. Did he leave the second one? Yeah. That was, uh, oh, gosh. Um, what he director? Did, he did uh, Cut Castaway Island or no, no, Cutthroat Island. Oh, Rennie, Rennie Harlan? Rennie Harlan, yes. 
Yeah, I know. No wonder it wasn't great. I mean, I, I liked it because it was set in Denver. Oh, uh, that's so that right. Was a fun little, you know. You're like the next diehard is set in Denver. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, and and that was just a little joy. And plus, you know, like that was that was a cool villain. You know, yeah, uh, it was not nearly as cool as Hans, but there were some great moments in that. I really um, enjoyed the third one, though. I thought that was good. The third one was really solid. And uh, I don't think I saw. I don't even think I saw the the more recent one. I did. I, I think there were a massive departure, and that was the more Fast and the Furious diehards, mm-hmm. which I don't care for. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like the thing that makes this movie great, specifically the first Die Hard, and and in Die Hard Two when he gets the you know he jacks out of the yeah. plane, it's like oh he would never survive that. Yeah. It's dumb. Like what made the first Die Hard so wonderful was that you believe the action. Yep. You got a vulnerable protagonist, and you go on that journey with him and 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 with those it's kind of like an action figure yeah it's hard to recapture that because mm-hmm. it's a truly a lightning in the bottle kind of thing but in die hard with a vengeance yeah you got a little bit more of that yep and i think it's because they went back to to you know john mctiernan and said let's get the magic back yeah and you got jeremy irons as this also brilliant yeah. you know brother to hans gruber yeah. you know like oh okay I'm You're, a big fan of scavenger hunts too. Yeah. So that, that oh, aspect of the movie. That I Simon love says that shit. aspect. Uh-huh. I mean, and the interplay between Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis was perfect. Yeah, I mean, great. like absolutely perfect. And addressing some racial issues, mm-hmm. racial tension too, just yeah. on a very subversive level, like really going into some stuff that is not addressed in a lot of action movies, frankly, yeah. you know? They didn't have to do that. Agreed. But they went there. Yeah. I don't know. Good stuff. Yeah. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure, 
To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee, sounds perfect. All right, we finish with two segments. Okay. Uh, what Ebert said. This movie is a complete disappointment. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then five questions. I'm uh, fascinated to hear what Ebert had to say. Well, Ebert gave it two stars and was a bit of a dick about it. Whoa. <laughs> he gave a, it two stars? Yeah, this is a bit longer than usual, the pull quote. but I, Was I feel, this before Thumbs Up? Uh, well, this is his column, oh. which he didn't, he didn't thumb the column. That was just wow. for the TV show. So he had this to say. Uh, he talks a little bit about it and sort of liking it. Then he says, but then the filmmakers introduce a gratuitous and uh, unnecessary additional character, deputy police chief, uh, the Paul Gleason character, who doubts that the guy on the other end is really a New York cop at all. As nearly as I can tell, the deputy chief is in the movie for one purpose, to be consistently wrong at every step of the way and provide a phony counterpoint to the progress. The character is so willfully useless, so dumb, so much a product of the idiot plot syndrome, which he capitalizes, by the way, yeah. uh, that all by himself he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Disagree. Uh, thrillers like this need to be well-oiled machines with not a single wasted moment. Inappropriate and wrong-headed interruptions reveal the fragile nature of the plot and prevent it from working. Without the deputy chief and all he represents, Die Hard would have been more than a passable thriller. With, with him, it's a mess, and that's a shame because the film does... Uh, does contain su- superior special effects, huh. impressive stunt work, and good performances. I can see his point there. Yep. But, I but also, he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, but also it's like that's the hubris of the police force too. It was, it, you know, Gleason represented uh, Dwayne, yep. Dwayne, what was his name? Oh, in the movie? Deputy Dwayne. Yeah. Uh, uh, Casey? No. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, yeah, that sounds about right. But I, I think that. He needed to be there too. Is the the, the, the arrogance of the police force? Like mm-hmm. We know what we're doing. Oh Christ! It could be a it could be a bartender for all we know, Powell. You yeah, know, like it's a bit of a trope, but I bought it. It, it is a trope, but it, it but it works because also I I love certain things about the '80s tropes. It's a beautiful time capsule. I mm-hmm. mean, look at the character of Ellis. I mean, like he is the epitome <laughs> yeah. of arrogant, greedy '80s. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think that if you don't have that idiot or or someone who's who's a little bit inept at their job who's mm. just kind of going guns blazing um then you don't get to see the real beauty of John you yeah. don't get to see the real beauty of Al Powell who's trying to well, be more measured in his approach and saying yeah. should we go in guns blazing or should we a little back off and just kind of take it allows it allows Al to be the smartest guy on the scene yep smarter than the FBI smarter you know they're shooting at the lights like Yep. It just it's I th- I thought it was great. I had no problem with that character. Yeah, I mean he's a dick, but I don't think he was All I, I of them think, are idiots except yeah. for Al. Yeah. I mean I think he he didn't detract from the storyline for me. Yeah. He really didn't. Even after viewing this for the God, I don't even know, I know. how many times I've seen this movie. <laughs> it's hard to count. It is hard to count. Um I should really keep a tally from now on. But uh <laughs> write it on your arm and uh, <laughs> yeah, sharpie. Too, get some tattoos <laughs> like memento. Um but uh yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a small thing to nitpick, and I think he he missed the overall value of the mm-hmm. movie, unfortunately. Yeah. But you know, can't be right about all. Either. No, all respect. I've had a, <laughs> I've had a few in here where uh, I thought he was dead wrong on. So yeah, yeah. All right, and then we finish with five questions with mm-hmm. Ross Markand. Is it Markand? Marquand. Oh, jeez, I've been saying Markand. That's okay. Marquand. Mm-hmm. What is that? French. Okay, of course it is. <laughs> First movie you remember seeing in the theater? Oh, Spaceballs. Oh, yeah. All right. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, first R-rated movie. 
Did you have restricted viewing as a Methodist like I did? Oh, yeah, up? yeah, yeah. Okay. I couldn't even watch Beyond PG-13. All right. Yeah, same here. First R-rated movie I think I saw was Pulp Fiction. Oh, I hope I'm not indicting my brother here in this, but my brother's friend had snuck a little video camera and oh, it came wow. into... Pirated, huh? Uh, very much. And it was awful quality. Yeah, that's not a good way to see But I think that was the first already movie I saw was Pulp Fiction. I was 13. Via pirated copy? Via pirated copy. Wow. Yeah. Um, number three. You... <laughs> I shouldn't be admitted to that. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations probably. Yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember doing so recently? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, Do you the last one I walked out of, and this was more just because I was starting to have a terrible headache, was uh, Rambo from 2007. And I love the Rambo movies, but mm-hmm. I genuinely started, I, I got a, a migraine from all the the super, super quick edit points mm-hmm. and flashes and the sounds. It just gave me a migraine, gotcha. so I had to walk out of there. Yeah. Are you a migraine sufferer? Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry to I'll hear love, that. That's okay. I got some friends that that's the worst. Uh, this one is tailored to, uh, the guest. So is there an impossible impression? Oh, yeah. Is there a, a white whale out there that? Mine is Ryan Gosling. Ah. He's so subtle and he's Canadian, mm-hmm. but he, he does this in most of his movies. I feel like he's trying to do like this faux Brooklyn accent uh-huh. in most of his movies. And I don't know where he got that from because I don't think any any dialect that I've studied from Canada sounds like this. But yeah. I feel like he came over to the States early enough where maybe he spent some time in Brooklyn or maybe he felt like he had to sound. Yeah. A little, or maybe that's just genuinely how his voice is. But um, I've never been able to master it and I've tried for years. And you're still working on it? Oh, yeah. I'll never give up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep. Oh, really? I'll keep, I'll keep trying Gosling until I'm in the ground. But um, <laughs> he's the toughest. He's the toughest. Wow. All yeah. right. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, man, we didn't even talk about Red Skull. Oh, yeah. Way to go. Thanks. You're part of the the MCU. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That's crazy. That was pretty cool, huh? It was, yeah. That's, you know, aside from church. So it was church, Boy Scouts, and Marvel. Like, <laughs> I collect, I went to Mile High Comics. I don't know if it's still there. Um, I, I, I mowed lawns a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. And I would collect all of the Marvel co- comic book cards. Like, I have Marvel series one through four, one through three, and then Marvel masterpieces. I ended around, like, 95, 96 with Fle- when Fleet did their uh, spinoff, and then I had, like, some of DC. Uh-huh. Um, didn't collect as much of the comics because that was, like, a huge investment. Yeah. Um, but I would read them. I would go. To, they, you know, yeah, they'd, yeah, they'd yeah. allow you to read them, <laughs> but, like, they wouldn't allow you. I mean, like, as long as you bought some cards when you were there, like, right. they'd allow you, you to read a few. There. Yeah. But, like... Any amount of money that I made, it went directly to collecting those cards. I have so many; it's it's absurd. So you got that call, and they're like, can you could probably do a Hugo weaving, and they was that just like, yeah, pit, I mean, I, yourself? I I I was blown away. I mean, because I just thought it was just going to be you know doing the you know quick little voice match, or they wanted me to sound like him, uh-huh. uh, but maybe it was for a different character. Because I naturally assumed that Hugo was going to come back, right? Um, and I don't know the details as to why he didn't want to. But, I think uh, I read that he just didn't want to. Yeah. I mean, it it's, it might have been that simple. Might have been that simple, yeah. yeah. But I was I was really honored because I I grew up, like, Red Skull is, like, one of the oldest villains of all time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think he came out in 41, his first appearance, I want to say. Um, he was basically used as Nazi yeah. war propaganda, you know, like, or anti-Nazi war propaganda right. for the, for the uh, allied, young allied soldiers to join up and uh-huh. join the cause. So fight against Red Skull and Hitler, you know. Um, 
And I used to draw him. I used to draw him and Sabretooth wow. and Omega Red and Wolverine. Like those were my like four or five like favorite characters to draw. Mm-hmm. And when I got the word that I was going to be playing him, I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's like it's two minutes in the movie. But oh, it, it, I, 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 would, I would be just in costume and yeah. like, totally fine with that, you know. Yeah. So it was, uh, I'm still blown away so cool. pitching myself, yeah. So you were here for that too, huh? Yeah, yeah. Man. I'm glad I got that in because people would have been so mad if I would have oh, okay. Can you give us a little Red Skull? Oh, God. My my voice no. is shot. I'm okay. sorry. I don't want to. No, that's do right. It. I won't do it justice. You right don't want to disrespect Red Skull. <laughs> yeah. All right. And finally, movie going 101. Uh, what is your ritual? Where do you where do you sit? What do you do at the concession stand? How do you um, do it? If I'm in L.A., I go to the Vista Theater. I know it well. You know well? Yeah. And a lot of guests, we all talk about our love of the Vista. It's the best. I used to I live mean, right down the street. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, like Los Feliz or where yep. were you? Yeah. Okay. Sort of like uh, Los Feliz adjacent, yeah. uh, Vermont and Santa Monica. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, Alvarado and Wilshire. I was like MacArthur Park. Nice. And there really weren't, back in 2005 when I first yeah. moved to LA, like there weren't good theaters around there. Um, so I would always hightail it up to the Vista. And, uh-huh. and to this day, like that's my favorite place to watch a movie because it's those... I mean, that theater is just, it's, it's, it's history, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's living history. And, um, I, I don't, I don't really do the conces- concessions because I'm just worried that like, if I have anything to drink or, or eat, I'm going to, you know, need to run out and use a bathroom. But, right. Um, I sometimes do popcorn. I'm mostly, I'm a very polite, like quiet. I don't make noise. I don't yeah. make sound. I'm very like, I'm just analyzing it the whole time. Mm. You know, if I, if I ever do decide to talk about it, it'll be afterwards. And then I want to talk a lot about it. Right. But during the movie, I, I cannot stand when people ask questions or talk about it. Because I'm like, I'm sure it'll be revealed if you wait five minutes. Right. You know? But, um, yeah, I just believe that, like, theater etiquette has just completely gone by the wayside you in kidding, recent brother. years. It's really crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Good good stuff, man. All right. This cool. was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for being on. Alrighty, everybody, we did it. Man, what a fun one. I think this will this will go down as one of the great movie crush interviews because uh or, or conversations rather, because uh, all the great stuff, man, all that fun impression stuff. And then uh I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. I would say, dare I say, one of the the great conversations about Die Hard ever recorded for podcasts. Uh, I've never heard any other ones, but I'm gonna go ahead and throw throw this one in the top five. We got into it, and that was a lot of fun. Ross is, is a fun, nice guy and very gener- uh, generous with his time and very generous to indulge me with all the impressions. And uh, it was kind of fun to talk about um, the, the art of impressions and uh, and get into that a little bit. It's, it's very cool. As someone who considers himself a very much an amateur impressionist, it was kind of nice to see someone who really knows what they're doing and know that he works on it and that it is a craft. And uh, what a great story, man. Very, very happy for his success, as I'm sure you are as well. I hope he continues on The Walking Dead and he doesn't get eaten by a zombie for many years to come. I hope they make another Red Skull movie uh, and that he gets to be in it. Um, we talked about that afterward. That would be really great for Ross. And uh, I just wish, you'd, uh, wish him continued success in the years to come. So that is it for this week. I uh, hope you enjoyed yourselves. And until next time, yippee-ki-yay, Mr. Falcon.
Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.